Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this afternoon's online panel of Singapore Perspectives 2023 entitled Work. My name is Robin. I'm a research fellow at the Institute of Policy Studies, and I'm your moderator this afternoon. The theme for this panel, panel six, is addressing job vulnerabilities, ensuring viable and decent work for all. This morning, the keynote speech by Secretary General of NTUC, Mr. Ng Chi Ming, and the earlier panel highlighted the advance of technology and the transformation of businesses, bringing disruptions to the labor market. This has created new vulnerabilities among workers. Globally, wages of lower wage workers have deteriorated or stagnated. Associate Professor Irene Ng in the earlier panel highlighted the high income and, in, and inequality, high and low wage incidents and the rise in the non-standard forms of employment in Singapore. The rise of the gig economy would mean that jobs have become more insecure for these workers, with many of them working without adequate protection or benefits. Indeed, the impact of technological advance in tandem with the pandemic recession has led to this double disruption for our workers, leading to displacement of traditional jobs. In Singapore, of concern are the mid-career workers, workers in small and medium-sized enterprises, blue-collar workers, and the non-professional white-collar workers. Panel 6 will pose the following questions. What are the job vulnerabilities faced by these workers and the ground realities experienced by them? How can stakeholders respond to these job vulnerabilities and ensure that workers can make a decent living for themselves and their families? On the note of working together, what can the different stakeholders, the government, the labour union, employers and businesses and workers, as well as communities, come together? These are some questions we hope to be able to address in the panel today. To do this, we are very privileged to have with us a wonderful panel of speakers let me briefly introduce them to you today. Our first speaker is Mr. Patrick Tay. He's the Assistant Secretary General of NTUC. He represents the labor movement in tripartite work groups, lobbying for changes to manpower-related laws and policies in Singapore. Our second speaker, Dr. Srija Naya, is Assistant Professor at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. Her research has covered issues such as climate change, food insecurity, water resource management, and more Recently, digital transformation and workforce resilience. Finally, our third and last speaker for the panel, Ms. Ranganayaki Tengavelu, is the Deputy Executive Director at Beyond Social Services, a nonprofit that is committed to engaging families living on low incomes and enabling the rental housing neighborhoods that they live in to become villages that support and raise their children well. How we're going to run this panel is that the speakers will be given 15 minutes each uh, and then after we will open up for the Q&A. Um, to our online audience, uh, please submit your questions for the speakers using the Q&A panel on the right side of your screen. Um, we invite you to contribute to our discussions in a respectful and safe manner. A gentle reminder to all that this online panel is open for media coverage. With this, I will hand uh, our time over to Mr. Patrick Tay. Mr. Tay, please. Thanks, Robin, and uh, a very good afternoon to everyone. I wanted to use this opportunity uh, to thank uh, the team, the organizing team for having myself and the rest of us here, and a happy new year to everyone. And it's, it's so appropriate. Last week, we heard uh, Minister Chan Chun Singh as he kicked off uh, the Singapore Perspectives 2023, talking about lifelong learning, continuing education and training, and how we can better support fellow Singaporeans, particularly the middle-aged, even mature ones 
you know, uh, pivot and transform themselves and stay relevant and ready uh, in this future of work. And so this afternoon, I thought uh, before we, we kick off the real panel discussions and taking some of your Q&A uh, to share some insights and perspectives uh, from the labor movement, uh, myself, uh, and, and, and addressing the job vulnerabilities of mature PMEs. You'll be wondering why uh, this specific focus on mature PMEs. I think you probably heard SecGen uh, NTUC, uh, Brother Ng Chiming mentioned this morning, as well as my, my colleague, Brother Desmond Chu, also mentioning about the role of unions, stakeholders, tripartite partners, and grappling with this future of work and this ever-changing and, and transforming uh, you know, environment, particularly we are operating in. And even uh, as, as you can see uh, in the last two and a half years with COVID-19 pandemic and the real disruption, in fact, beyond disruption, really curveballs hurled at many of us. I think uh, all segments of workers, be it the young, the not so young, uh, local, foreign, even male or female workers are, are facing various sorts of challenges. But we have uh, taken a particular focus on this segment, what we call the, the mature PMEs, the mature professionals, managers, executives. Uh, why then we, did we focus on this segment? I think this segment, yes, we have low wage, lower wage workers as well as other more vulnerable segments. But even prior to COVID-19, if you look at the manpower statistics and labour market reports, this segment are particularly vulnerable, those in the 40s to 60s, well, particularly exacerbated by the fact that uh, we have an ageing population, so a bigger group will fall into this category. And also the fact that, uh, say all you want, uh, as we embark on this entire uh, journey of the PME task force, which I'll touch a bit on uh, shortly, is that uh, you know they too uh, face various challenges and issues when finding work you know, or staying in work and staying employable. So, so this segment is of, of one which is of particular importance even prior to COVID. But even during COVID itself, we also saw many of them, uh, well, curveballs through at them in more ways than one, whether they are uh, in full-time employment, part-time employment, even in freelance arrangements, uh, being having to grapple with, uh, to, to pivot into new sectors, new industries, and uh, and really trying new careers. So, uh, well, this is with the backdrop of ever-changing and ever-evolving uh, new skills in demand. So I think there's a lot of exacting demands uh, in more ways than one on this particular segment, whom we call the mature professionals, managers, executives. And that's why uh, the impetus for the labour movement to partner the Singapore National Employers Federation in the thick of our COVID-19 pandemic to set up the PME task force. This joint task force between NTUC and SNEF. First of its kind, first time we have done this in a very formalised manner uh, without the government involvement. Uh, and both of us actually, uh, I together with uh, Brother Sim Gim Guan, uh, whom you, you would have uh, heard from uh, in earlier panels, and, and uh, myself co-chairing this uh, PME task force with a team of of uh, task force members, and uh, we we actually uh, took a, a great effort and through a one year period, a one year journey, to engage more than ten thousand local professional manager executives, different ages, different segments, different gender, and 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 in different uh, uh, industries and sectors of the economy, and and through that, uh, we got a better idea, and, and not beyond just a dipstick, because ten thousand is no mean feat. I mean, we really heard the feedback from the ground. It wasn't an easy journey because with COVID and all the restrictions. Uh, we could do 14, 15 focus group sessions, but that's, those were in a very uh, you know, safe management format. And, and we did a lot of online and offline engagements as well. So I think I wanted to use this opportunity to share some of the findings from that, uh, if I may have the next slide. 
And uh, well, one key thing that came out of it is that uh, many of these mature PMEs whom uh, I, I, I mentioned are in the ages of 40 to 60 years old. I think these are this segment is particularly vulnerable. Uh, they, 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 they fear, I mean, in two big areas. Firstly, job security, uh, whether it's employment and as well as employability, whether if they lose a job or even if they stay in a current job and the job is being disrupted, uh, like what we see in some industries, whether they can bounce back and be rehired or re-enter uh, into the workforce. So these are two major challenges uh, which they face. And of course, picking up training. No easy feat. Myself also trying uh, in the last couple of years, undergoing some, uh, using my skills future credit to, to take on some of these skills future uh, training courses. It's not easy. Uh, some come with exams and tests. And, and, and mind you, uh, at, at this age, uh, it's not that easy to, to really, you know, learn something totally new. Uh, so I think these are some of the fears, anxieties that many of our PMEs, particularly the mature ones face. Next slide. And uh, because of our survey across 10,000 uh, PMEs, uh, we, we actually covered the different segments and almost different ages as well. And uh, you, be, uh, you, you, you want to take cognizance of the fact that uh, not just mature PMEs, but younger PMEs themselves uh, realize that uh, things are being disrupted uh, skills are, you know, the skills in demand are changing so rapidly. So therefore, amongst the younger PMEs, we also realize that uh, uh, information asymmetry, i.e. where the skills in demand, the jobs in demand, are, are areas which concern them quite a bit. And for the mature PMEs, uh, whether they can, you know, continue to stay in employment and, and of course, stay employable is, is always top of their minds. Uh, like I said, this entire survey is done in the midst of uh, COVID pandemic. And therefore, I would say pretty contemporaneous to, to really you know, resonate and, and echo the, the fears and anxieties. And of course, PMEs uh, in, in certain sectors, for example, like the ICT and financial sector, uh, of course, this is prior to the, 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 the slew of uh, layoffs that we saw in the tech sector in the last six months. This is was done prior to that. But many of them also uh, worry about uh, you know, whether there's a level playing field for them, uh, which with a very large uh, foreign workforce in these professional services sector. Next slide. And uh, of course, the key one of some of the key insights, uh, the the more mature, uh, the the older PMEs actually comparatively with the younger ones uh, are are more at least less confident really about their career opportunities, and and they attribute that to their age, and uh, and and you know one of the key uh, takeaways from the, this entire PME task force survey is uh, they they feel they feel that uh, you know ageism there's some still some form of ageism uh, that's happening. And therefore, uh, there's concern and worries and fears over this particular aspect. Next slide. Yes, uh, here, here we are, the, some of the key insights from the PME engagements. And, uh, and yes, mature PMEs generally felt that they, they, they were more vulnerable and face uh, various, various challenges. Uh, like I said, level playing field, uh, workplace fairness, as well as ageism. Some of these actually are quite top their minds. And uh, well, Post uh, this entire PME task force, uh, you know, journey, we we, we actually fleshed out a, a list of nine key recommendations from this report, which I will highlight uh, shortly. Next slide. Yes, uh, this is a further. Uh, what are the areas uh, that help dovetail our key nine recommendations, which I'll share shortly? I think some of these are, are about you know creating a more. Uh, fairer level playing field in the workplace to ensure job security and at the same time also employability 
of our matured PMEs in particular. And, and many of them felt that uh, there are more ways and different kinds of supports that can uh, make their journey, uh, particularly the lifelong journey as well as the lifelong learning journey, uh, a more smoother and successful one. Next slide. These are the nine recommendations uh, with four key trusts. Uh, essentially, uh, this uh, deck, or uh, should I say this entire report uh, is available either if you are connected with me by LinkedIn or through the various platforms, you can do a search on it. Uh, it's readily available and uh, you can read through the entire uh, deck of all the, the various surveys that we have done in that journey, in that one-year journey, as well as some of the, the, the key outcomes from the uh, focus groups. At the same time, the nine recommendations. But I thought uh, to mention specifically, this nine recommendation were fleshed out sometime late 2021. And uh, uh, I mean, first time I'm sharing, but uh, just uh, end uh, 2022, just a couple of weeks ago, Minister of Manpower has actually sent a formal reply uh, to the Labour movement, uh, as well as SNEF, i.e. Uh, Brother Sim Ging Guan and myself, uh, on, on uh, this entire deck recommendations. And as you can see, uh, looking at these nine recommendations, uh, almost, uh, I would say, eight out of nine recommendations have, in, in a way, been rolled out in various forms. For example, the formation of Tropanic uh, Committee on Workplace Fairness, uh, which is uh, deliberating on a proposed workplace fairness piece of legislation that you'll hear more uh, this year. At the same time, also other areas, for example, like Compass, where we try to level the playing field for local PMEs, as well as uh, well, other important areas to support mature workers, particularly mature PMEs in their continuing education and training, uh, career coaching, as well as uh, their upskilling journey. And, and one very, very important point I would like to mention in these recommendations uh, is our lobbying for unemployment support for PMEs who are displaced. I think this is uh, one uh, area which uh, stood out quite a bit from our engagements. It's been fleshed out in recommendations and it's something which uh, MOM uh, or Minister of Manpower has replied that they are looking at it. I mean, you heard uh, some snippets of it uh, when he uh, uh, launched uh, the Empower Pillar and, and he, he did mention specifically that uh, they're looking at it, exploring it uh, uh, from a long-term basis. Next slide. And post-PME task force recommendations that we have uh, fleshed out, uh, we also use this opportunity to, to double-click on some of the key things uh, through this launch of the Every Worker Matters conversations. Uh, you probably hear this uh, four key letters, EWMC happening, or hashtag EWMC happening uh, on, on social media as well as on other platforms. And we've been uh, on this journey, uh, Brother Desmond Chu, whom you heard earlier in the earlier panel, as well as myself, are uh, you know co-chairing and, and supporting this journey. Uh, is a, is a year-long journey which started in, uh, in August last year, and uh, we, we will probably hear iterations of this uh, as we uh, look at what the new worker compact is. And uh, beyond uh, professional management executives, there's of course the youth as well, as well as the youth task force as well, uh, and of course other segments. So we've been consulting widely. Uh, and engaging widely through focus groups as well as other platforms uh, to the tune of more than 10,000 already. And we are still uh, uh, pressing on in the coming weeks uh, and, and trying to hear from the ground and, and really you know, develop a, a deck of, uh, of, of ideas and recommendations uh, to forge a new worker compact be it between workers, different segments of workers, different types of workers, and of course, in the new work, workforce and workplace. Next slide. And uh, these are just uh, some of the uh, pictures of our engagements uh, in the last uh, five months. And uh, yes, we have, we have been consulting widely and also double-clicking on this mature PME segment. Uh, we just wanted to you know, uh, 
post COVID or should I say in post recovery, uh, trying to you know double click with uh, our matured PMEs to hear from them whether such fears and anxieties as splashed out in the PME task force recommendations are still uh, relevant and are still uh, top in their minds. And last slide. Yes. So uh, in, in conclusion, I would say, uh, you know, the anxieties, concerns and uh, aspirations of our local PMEs uh, must not be ignored as reflected uh, in our joint ntuc SNEF uh, PME Task Force report. And as a society, uh, we value fairness and equal opportunities for all uh, workers, which is why NTUC and SNEF, uh, as I shared earlier, are working closely with the government and employers to ensure we have a level playing field for our local PMEs. And when our PMEs feel supported and valued, they are more likely to be motivated and productive and are leading to win-win outcomes for both businesses and workforce. And, and, and we further recognize that uh, the mature PMEs, particularly those in their 40s to 60s, continue to face risks in terms of job displacement and challenges in re-entering the workforce when they have been laid off. Yeah, as you can see from the tech sector in the last couple of months, we need to really give them a greater assurance and assistance with some form of uh, unemployment support. So we'll continue to lobby in that front. And in the next few decades, Singapore will experience uh, significant demographic shifts with our aging population. And thus, we must ensure that our mature PMEs are not left behind as our economy uh, transforms. So on that note, uh, we will continue in, in that journey to champion for our mature PMEs to ensure uh, they are not left behind. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Patrick Tay, for your presentation. I think what stood out for me was that when you highlighted the job vulnerabilities of the PMEs, uh, their fears and anxieties about job insecurity and about their skills becoming uh, replaceable and irrelevant. Right. So on this note, uh, I think it's timely that we dive further into this topic. We have Dr. Srija Naya who will share findings from a recent study on challenges faced by mid-career trainees when it comes to reskilling and upskilling. Over to you, Ms. Uh, Dr. Naya. Thank you, Robin. Um, and thank you to IPS for inviting me to share uh, this research. Um, <clears throat> um, and it's an honor to be sharing the panel with Mr. Patrick and Ms. Ranga as well. Uh, so what I'm going to share today is part of a larger collaborative project which came to a close last year. It was funded by the Singapore Social Science Research uh, Council and we had several facets in this project which looked at how digital transformations are going to impact workforce and workplace. One of the components of this project, which I was uh, looking at was on what are, what are the policy aspects of how can policymakers support uh, those who are undergoing these uh, transformations and the specific sectors which are undergoing these transformations. One of the tools which policymakers can employ is that of skills training. So reskilling, upskilling. And we were looking at, uh, we wanted to study one particular program which came around during the COVID uh, during the COVID period, which was this SG United Skills Program. Next slide, please. So, a review of the literature around skills training reveals that much of the evaluations of skills training they're often limited to just getting feedback from the trainee at the end of the program and looking at whether they found a job or not, uh, not giving enough, there's not much chance for the trainee to actually reflect 
on their journey of undertaking this uh, skills training or a reskilling or upskilling effort. And that really motivated us to deep dive into what do skill, what do trainees really think when they come into these programs and what are their profiles, what have they done before they come to these trainings and what is their journey like during the training. Another knowledge gap is that it, the training profiles are often, it's difficult to kind of match a perfect training program into, to the profile of the trainee. And this is an ongoing challenge. So with that, our objectives were really to assess what is the experience of a trainee coming into a particular training program? How does that link with the attitudes towards learning and training in general that they have? And what are the job outcomes of after they undertake uh, a, a skills training program? And the idea was to inform uh, the future iterations of skills training programs in Singapore. Next slide, please. So the case in focus here is the SG United Skills Program, which was a reskilling upskilling program, which came about during the COVID year. It, they offered six to 12 months of uh, courses, which were certifiable by uh, CET centers, including institutes of higher learning. Uh, it had several unique features. For example, it was offered progressively. So they were continuing these IHLs, private training providers and unions, they were continuing to provide training in cohorts. So throughout the year, they would have different times of intakes and different exits uh, period. It was offered in a modular format, understanding that uh, people are looking for jobs. It was for job seekers. They are looking for jobs. So they need this flexibility to exit. If they find a job, they have the flexibility to exit. But you will still go with a, uh, with a certification of some sorts, even if you do a one month or a two month. So that was a very unique feature of this uh, program. This course fee, of course, was subsidized and um, offered by SkillsFuture, and you could use your SkillsFuture credit as well for this. Uh, another feature which was unique for this particular program was that there was a monthly training allowance of 1200 Singapore dollars, which many trainees kind of uh, spoke about a lot that how much it helped them during this COVID period to not really uh, think twice before jumping into a training program. Now, as of April, 2022, this uh, SGUS has transformed into a career transition program. It's a train and place program. Now, the focus of this SGUS was on sectors of high labor demand and growth potential. So there were a number of training courses being offered ranging from six months to nine months to 12 months. We deep dived into two institutes of higher learning and interviewed uh, uh, trainees who came into this program. And next slide, please. So what we did was at the end of 2021, we conducted one hour long interviews. This was the trainees had to opt in to take these, uh, to, to participate in this interview from two IHLs and the, the, in, the pictures here give an idea of, uh, are really to give an idea of what a typical training program would look like. So you could have uh, a training for one month and if you exit, you can still get a professional certificate in human and man managerial literacy. So each, it was a modular format for all these trainings and the range of courses offered was huge from advanced manufacturing to FinTech to Infocom and media, digital HR, digital marketing. And so we conducted a one hour long interview. We interviewed 39 trainees who came into these training programs. And what we asked them was to, it was a semi-structured interview. We asked them to 
share with us what their background is, education, what kind of uh, career trajectory do they have? Why did they enroll in this training program? How their experience has been, their ideas of skills training landscape in Singapore as such, as such what are some job outcomes that, uh, so, so this, these interviews were conducted towards the end of the training uh, program. So when we contacted these two IHLs, we looked at trainees who were about to finish or had completed the training program. So we could ask them about the job outcomes. And uh, next slide, please. So now I'd like to share, now we had um, this, uh, we had several insights from the project, but for the presentation today, I'll specifically want to focus into insights from mid-career training uh, trainees. And uh, I'd like to echo some of the thoughts which Mr. Patrick presented earlier, that the mid-career trainees, this group is specifically uh, quite different. They are juggling multiple personal and professional roles and the stage of their career that they are in. Some of the, they have unique vulnerabilities which makes it particularly difficult for them to make these transitions. The first, so these quotes are from the trainees and we did a thematic analysis of what was coming out from uh, what the trainees say in terms of their experience of undergoing this particular training. Now, the one of the key themes which came out was uh, you're dealing with a moving scale when you're talking of skills training. If you're not placed into a job immediately, uh, you lose the opportunity to really practice what you've learned. So with this new um, form of the SGUS, which is a career transition program, uh, we believe that this should be able to address this issue of making giving the opportunity for the trainee to actually practice what they learn immediately after the training program. Another concern was that when things are changing so rapidly, how many of us would be doing the same thing that we are getting this training for? for. So a little bit of skepticism around that, you know, training, we, I'm training for something, but it could become obsolete very, very soon. So where does it end? Or is it a constant moving scale that I'm dealing with? Uh, there were others who appreciated the flexibility of uh, training of this kind with a modular format. People who are deciding which, do they do a career switch or which career path to actually do. There were also those who said, what, what do I do next? Is there a, a, an advanced course of this or where should I go? Uh, there were others who, people who've been in a particular sector or industry for 20 years and now making a transition for them, a single training, um, there was a bit of a lack of confidence in the sense that, is this training enough? What if my employer asks me to do some, uh, some big analysis based on me having undertaken this training program? I don't feel confident. Maybe I can do an internship with them before, beforehand. So uh, these were some of the skepticisms uh, around um, what is this continuity in skills training? Can you get better and better at, at skills? and how so. Time constraints, of course, this particular age group, uh, mid-career training uh, trainees who are in this stage in their career, they are juggling between full-time work many times. Uh, they would have issues, even if they're employed, can they take time, can they get time off for training? And uh, if, if they, they are working, of course, they have to see how it fits with their work commitments. Next slide, please. Uh, this one came out very 
many many trainees brought this up the training alone is not enough so we asked them this question between skills and qualifications what do they think is more important how should the hiring be done so many of them said that i may have the skills but how should how do i demonstrate it it's still my networks which get me the job most of the time or if i have to hire somebody it will be based on me knowing them personally or knowing that they do do a good job so is the training alone enough to actually get the job so you might do a tech course but you're still unable to get a tech job so the actually getting the job uh, probably requires other types of skills like networking and uh, do you know somebody from your previous work experience are there people who value the kind of um, other skills that you bring even if you're switching sector or industry so this was a concern that is a training enough ageism concerns uh, uh, there were not many but there were few who did bring up bring and here is where the employer kind of comes into the picture so people are doing this training but does the employer kind of value the uh, the kind of credentials that this kind of training brings in or is there a preference for say younger people for certain types of jobs so there was some who mentioned this concern that really everybody has to come come on board um, and that's when it really will make a difference um, and training allowance of course was mentioned uh, many times that it's uh, if there's no there was no training allowance there was no subsidy then you must think do you really want to make an an, an investment in paying for a training program and uh, the next slide please this is the last slide where i kind of summarize that what does it imply for policy design so i'm someone who's looking at what does it mean for a policymaker in designing a skills training program because it is indeed very hard to design a training program which will cater to every type of trainee but how best can we reduce that mismatch and how best can we kind of bring a trainee very close to kind of a very perfect training program designed for customized to them so first thing to realize is there is a complex relationship between skills training and the skills training by itself leading to say better job better pay better um, position or a new sector and it, it's really an ecosystem with many variables that we are talking about so it requires a, a trainee with a positive attitude employers with an open attitude education which is recognized and training agencies which is recognized and governments to provide the support so there are many variables so it's important for us as researchers to even understand that there is this complex relationship the second uh, takeaway is really that some profiles of workers each worker is different some profiles require more assistance and targeted support so identifying what is it that makes it difficult for them to to enroll into a training sustain in the training and then get a, a better career outcome after the training so where is it that uh, you know there like in this uh, in interviews we have not actually spoken to people who dropped out in between for example so what why did they drop out where are they actually who are those who are constantly falling through the cracks so some profile of workers would require that extra assistance to bring them on board and uh, make them part of this learning journey and my final point and i think is one uh, it's very important that when we think of career transitions we don't think of single training programs but pathways so pathways which help trainees to move be between edu formal education or vocational training to employment and if they want to come back 
So like in Europe, there are uh, countries where this there are several career pathways. So what a trainee has done before the training and what they want to do later, are there clear pathways which are very uh, under, which are very logical and easy to understand for the trainee? That if I take this particular training, this is what I'm looking at next. This is how it links to what I've done before. And of course, it's influenced by how a successful training is perceived and how a successful career transition is, is measured. Is it, by, is it by position? Is it by moving into a uh, industry of your choice? Uh, so uh, skills training can mean different things to different tra trainees. So uh, I, I'll end there and I'll be happy to take any questions later. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Srija, for the presentation. Indeed, your findings suggest that uh, reskilling and upskilling I mean, alone may not be uh, may not be enough, you know, to lead to increased workers' employability and also to improve their career prospects. Indeed, the reality is more complex than that. Uh, perhaps uh, during the Q and A, we will revisit this point that we have raised from your findings. Moving on, we are going to focus on a different group of vulnerable workers. Uh, Ms. Renga from Beyond Social Services will share on the challenges faced by lower wage workers and their families, and on the note of working together. What does collaboration, cooperation, and inclusion look like? Over to you, Ms. Ranga. Thank you, Robin. Uh, very happy to be on this panel with the rest of the distinguished speakers here. Uh, I'm glad to be here uh, to as representing the nonprofit sector, actually, uh, because I think when we look at all the studies and the research that has been put out, it, it sheds light on the overall problem. And uh, I'm really here to look at the human face of lower income earners uh, and bring them into this uh, conversation. So slide one, please. Uh, the study on in-work poverty uh, in 2020, uh, which uh, Professor Irene would have shared earlier, shows that low educated young workers are disadvantaged by their age, low education, and they also face lower psychological well-being in comparison to the Singapore Mental Health Study and lower quality of job conditions than those found in the Eurofund study of 2017. Uh, I wanted to actually touch on this uh, second point of low education. Uh, the average earnings of respondents with ITE qualifications was no different from that of respondents with secondary and below qualifications. And when I saw this particular finding, uh, many faces popped into my mind of very enthusiastic young people in the communities that I work in who have so many skill sets and strengths, and the only way they can pursue their education is through ITE. And they, when they make it through ITE, they have actually achieved a level of education which is different from their parents. And yet when they come out into the job market, what they are faced with is very uh, lower level choices. So if we look at what is actually op the option for them, it's actually as delivery riders and so on, which is very similar to if you didn't study at all. So that actually puts a, a focus on how do we allow that education pathways to lead to good employment for those who are better skilled. Uh, slide two, please. Uh, so the nature of low income, I mean, I think all of us would have uh, heard about these various different issues that uh, lower income uh, uh, respondents uh, or, you know, like uh, workers face. There's definitely lower education, lower salaries, uh, and people have to take on multiple jobs to make ends meet. Uh, and this third point, which is less social capital, means that they're always in the same uh, group of people who are in similar situations like them. So the opportunity to make contact with those who can lead them on to better opportunities, better jobs uh, may not quite be there. Of course, there is the family issues, 
uh, and lack of space is the other, you know, living in uh, rental uh, or three room flats uh, makes it very physical space is limited and uh, emotional uh, space and mental space is also limited. And when we talk about training, I think uh, uh, Dr. Srija shared a lot about the training pathways, you know, for, for lower income workers as well as everybody else. And I find that uh, often the people that I work with uh, find it very difficult to continue attending training, committing to training and keep uh, keeping up uh, is a real challenge because of these various factors that we are uh, facing. And then there comes the employers, right? So employers have to ensure that the work is done. And uh, it is often difficult for them to accept the life challenges that lower income uh, employees uh, experience. And uh, employers sometimes are not aware of the lived experiences of the low income. So we've heard of many stories where traveling to work alone is an hour and a half. Uh, by public transport and people leave their homes as early as uh, 6 a.m. to be able to make it to a shift that starts at 7.30 a.m. Uh, so and at their job level, it is hard to have flexible work arrangements or work from home, which was the case during COVID-19. So even as I share this long list of uh, uh, issues that uh, lower income uh, uh, workers face, I think one of the things that we have to be really very aware of is the intersect intersectionality of these vulnerabilities. Uh, it is not only circular, it's somewhat of a spiral. So if you visualize a downward spiral and um, how do we catch, where do we catch it? You know, and how do we actually allow this spiral to maybe move upwards? You know, what, at which point does the intervention take place so that people feel more uplifted and want to be able and feel that they're swimming back up uh, is one of the things that comes to mind. Uh, so when we look at all these uh, vulnerabilities, the impact is definitely psychological, uh, physical, as well as social. So here I will touch a little bit more on the social component uh, later on uh, in my sharing. So psychologically, the self-image, uh, I'm not good enough. I'm not, uh, uh, I try very hard, but I can never make it. And this starts from a very young age. So there are uh, teenagers who tell us that they have no hope uh, and they're still studying. They haven't even uh, come to a point where they can choose a career. Uh, then physical, you know, the poverty of sleep food and money lead to poor health. So poverty here is not just about low income, but it's also of uh, not having enough sleep, always having this concern about is there enough food to put on the table. And uh, the last is reduced social participation leading to isolation. So if you're working multiple jobs, or if you're even if you're not completely working, you don't have that sense of uh, self-image that you can contribute to society. So these are some of the descriptions that I'd like to share about uh, low income uh, or low age work, uh, low income earners. Uh, next slide, please. So when we look at what can change, so structurally things need to change. And at the same time, intrinsically, people need to be nurtured and included. Uh, so we're looking, I, I would like us to explore a model where when one boat rises, all boats rise. Uh, you know, so there are different things that each of uh, as stakeholders we can do. And people in the center uh, is, is very important. Putting these people in the center of our Solutioning is, is very important. And uh, I, I know there's a tripartite uh, model, and I'm suggesting that the community civil society as a partner in supporting the growth of those from low income so they can be contributing members of our society. Uh, I'll share some examples of current initiatives that is actually looking at civil society participation in ensuring workers can contribute better in their, in their uh, jobs. Next slide, please. Uh, so if we look at... Uh, what can government do? 
So when we're looking at government and social protection, I was very happy to hear uh, Patrick share about the unemployment support for PMEs. So there's a social protection part of government, which is social insurance, social assistance, and labor market programs. And a decent living comes with decent wage. So the progressive wage model that is being rolled out is uh, raising salaries to a livable wage benchmark. So that is what government's uh, role then is. When it comes to the employers and businesses, uh, you know, I've been speaking to the Singapore Business Federation Foundation and two of the programs that they have rolled out is uh, very encouraging in allowing employers to be able to see the difficulties that employees face and how can we bring them together to be able to um, understand each other better. So as part of the Empower Circles, uh, the business community uh, who hires and the social service agencies who support and nurture people in transition from challenging circumstances come together to look at how best to support them. And the Employability Fund, once again, also works with uh, civil society actors, you know, um, nonprofits to outreach to different population groups, uh, starting with the rough sleepers and homeless and the long-term unemployed parents and caregivers of at-risk children. And now this is expanding to those with mental health conditions and out-of-school youths and caregivers. So SBFF, with its uh, uh, initiatives to bring various partners together, is, is very encouraging. Next slide. Uh, here, I will actually touch a little bit on, uh, uh, again, a civil society uh, initiative, uh, Work Well Leaders. Uh, it's a non-profit collective of CEOs and leaders, and they champion workplace mental health and well-being as a strategic priority and board agenda. So not just a HR responsibility. So it is intended as a community of practice for leaders so that employee mental well-being becomes foremost for employers. And this doesn't only focus on low-income uh, employees. It is actually looking at uh, everyone in the organization so that there's better awareness for uh, mental health. Uh, next slide, please. So this is where I light up even more, which is beyond social services where I work. And uh, I think the focus has always been on uh, being able to look at the strengths and the abilities of uh, our members in uh, rental housing that we work with, right? So uh, it's about, from a very young age, creating spaces for community participation. So I wanted to highlight three such programs that we have. And this is just an example, uh, which could perhaps, you know, we can share more about uh, outside of this conference. So Family Circles was one that came up during COVID. Uh, right after COVID-19 uh, hit and, you know, a year after that, uh, Family Circles was of members who came together to look at how to improve their lives. So they come together as a circle and they share on a regular basis on what are they working on, what are their aspirations. So it's giving them a space to be able to uh, act, to be able to share ideas, to be able to support each other. The community enablers and community fellows are actually people living in the rental uh, blocks who have a lot of uh, strengths purely because they've lived through a lot of challenges. And they also have uh, acquired various skills through their life. And uh, we uh, work with them together such that they're able to coordinate and uh, uh, do projects within their own communities. So the members bring their strengths and also acquire skills through this community participation. And what this then does is it translates this resilience to the workplace. So, you know, our work, our life, our families are not as separate as we think it is. When something changes in one part of our lives, it impacts everything else. So when we acknowledge the natural leaders in the community, they become part of something bigger. It expands their networks. They, they get to meet volunteers who are coming through CSR activities in, in corporates. They meet with uh, tertiary students who come there to perhaps teach younger children. And then they get motivated and have more hope for themselves and their children. So if you look at this, it's happening at all the levels, from the children to the youth to the parents. They are connecting with more social capital. 
as they participate in their own communities and they're also recognizing the inherent strengths. Uh, so the next slide is just an example of how the impact has been for two women that uh, we have worked very closely with. So this is a mother of six, aged 33. She's active in a mother's circle that is engaging neighbors towards building a safe neighborhood for their children. And uh, she says, I realized that I still have the capacity to learn new skills. I learned to interact with people from different backgrounds. I earned the trust of neighbors and in turn, they took me seriously when I talked about sexual harassment in my neighborhood. I managed to talk to neighbors who I rarely talk to, especially the youth. So this is a mother who initially felt that she was somewhat uh, in a situation that she cannot uh, do much about and now she feels very empowered. Uh, another mother, a mother of three, age 42, community enabler for a community matched savings program. So this is a matched savings program where people save and then this is matched by the uh, child development account uh, that every child has and uh, matched by donors and then matched by the CDA. And she says, I got to meet and know many neighbors, especially mothers in the community. I have become more open-minded and brave and I'm genuinely happy to help other mothers. Parents who are unable to attend due to work will contact me to help them by putting money for their children first on collection day. I'm proud to help this community to grow their children's savings. So if you just read these two accounts, it already clearly shows how much pride people take in the, in the things that they can do and help contribute. Uh, next slide, please. So basically, my, my entire sharing is summed up by this uh, quote uh, by uh, Mr. Ravi Menon, MD of MAS, when he spoke uh, at the launch of the Singapore Synthesis Innovation, Inclusion, Inspiration. Uh, inclusion is what uh, we are looking at. So if we're really working through that cycle of uh, community plus the labor movement, plus the government uh, we, and employers, we are really looking at a model where we can have more people contribute actively to our society. Thank you so much. All right, thank you all speakers. Uh, now we'll commence the Q&A segment. You may type in your questions using the Q&A function on the right side of your screen. Okay, um, as I look at another screen for the questions that are coming in. All right, uh, one member of the audience highlighted that in this fast changing economic um, environment, um, the skills landscape is evolving at a relentless rate. Indeed, uh, Dr. Shrija, Naya shared uh, on the perspectives of mature midlife and mid-career trainees, a perspective that we don't often hear enough. There are challenges when it comes to reskilling, upskilling and lifelong learning. Uh, similarly, this is a group that Mr. Patrick Tay has highlighted in his earlier presentation about their, the PME's worries about not having find another job that could match um, their current skill sets and also the anxieties about their skills becoming irrelevant um, in this fast-changing landscape. Um, and the earlier panel, Associate Professor Irene Ng highlighted the unequal training participation rates whereby workers with qual uh, university qualifications and above attending more training compared to workers with technical and other qualifications. Um, clearly, uh, reskilling, upskilling and lifelong learning alone may not be enough to enhance workers' employability and to improve their career prospects. All right, so on this note, um, do the speakers have a response to how the different stakeholders can work together um, for this skills ecosystem to enhance employability and career prospect for workers? Yeah, maybe I'll give a go at this for a start. I think as we nationally, we embarked on the Skills Future Initiative, 
and the various funding in the last you know, uh, many years, I think uh, we have gone beyond uh, the traditional employer-supported uh, training system uh, to individual-initiated training. I think that's also, in a way, helped us, uh, particularly during the COVID-19 pandemic, to support and better you know, uh, encourage and catalyze training among, for example, uh, freelancers and uh, freelance professionals because they are traditionally not in an employment relationship, but they now because of the individual initiated training framework and funding framework can therefore tap on national funding to upskill and upgrade themselves. But I think uh, what I can say uh, is that, you know, I, I can't agree more with uh, 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 Irene uh, in her sharing that uh, we, because in, in the labor movement in NTUC, uh, the strategy team together with uh, uh, many of our IHL partners have also done quite deep research in this space. And uh, I think one of the key takeaways is that uh, you know, the, the people who are more enlightened, more proactive, uh, you know, with a more uh, you know, active uh, spirit in the learning space tend uh, to be those who are more high potential, tend to be those who have a growth mindset and tend to embrace training more. So yeah, I think it, it, to many extent, to a large extent, uh, that's uh, quite right, that uh, perhaps even employers themselves uh, usually fund training of those who are, uh, you know, where, where they exhibit potential or, or have chances of moving up or taking bigger job responsibilities. So therefore, I think to level up, I think the labor movement, uh, besides forming our company training committees, uh, is working very closely with employers uh, as well as our Tropolite partners, because I think it's not just the individual uh, play a bottom role to individual initiated training, but I think the employer increasingly will play a bigger role where, because uh, those who are in an in, in employment relationship, uh, we cannot leave anyone behind. I think we talk about vulnerable workers and the vulnerabilities of all segments of our workers. And therefore, I think there's a need, there's a pressing need and imperative uh, to look out for everyone, to ensure that everyone uh, moves along and pick up the skills. Because the skills disruption, the curveballs are not just going to affect um, the, the upper half, but everyone in, in, in the workforce. So no one is spared, no one uh, should be left behind. And I think uh, a greater emphasis on the role of employers. I think Minister Chan Chun Singh did allude to that as well last week. And I think I can't uh, emphasize more, reiterate again, that uh, everyone in the ecosystem, as well as various stakeholders, particularly employers, play a very important role to ensure that everyone levels up. Um, if I can just add to that. So the skills training ecosystem, it's what makes it complex is, as I was saying, that there, were so many, there are so many variables. At the trainees and itself, there is definitely need for more research to understand how the trainees' attitudes, what, what they think about undertaking a training, what, uh, how do they see themselves as a learner? Uh, so even the interview that we did, uh, we've, we've, we've quite naturally probably got those who were most enthusiastic. They wanted to talk about the program, but what about those who kind of left it midway or just did it for a month and, and, and left it? How do we capture people who are at low on this kind of motivation or for whatever reason they're unable to even undertake a training. How do we capture them and how do their own motivations, their own circumstances link to these job outcomes? Uh, it, this is the biggest variable I, I, I feel. And if, if at all we are able to kind of understand what are these particular vulnerabilities, what kind of support, like for some training, it, a trainee, it might just be to have 
that kind of career coaching, counseling, and that would do all the difference for them. They have all the other information, but they just need motivation to kind of get back into the job, uh, job market, enter a new field, uh, just feel that they it, it's okay to kind of, it, it's not really a fresh restart, so to say, but, uh, you know, so uh, maybe that kind of co uh, counseling or career coaching is what they need and they have everything else. And from the employer side, again, for employers to be open to receiving uh, people who can bring a variety of skill sets. So if it's career or mature workers and they, they bring in a lot of experience and they bring in different kinds of skill sets and that matches with the training that they've, they've done. So the employer should be able to view it as an asset. So it requires the employers to also kind of come midway to say that we are, we are open to receiving mid-career and mature workers because they bring in a lot of experience. They will bring a different type of skill set to the table. Um, I wanted to just take on from what uh, Dr. Srija has shared about uh, career coaching. Uh, and, and here I would like, like to actually look at the younger workers. So if you're looking at youth who are going through ITE and coming out to work or, you know, in secondary education and, you know, looking at what to do next. So maybe the coaching or the befriending starts much earlier so that when they enter into the job market, they are also much clearer about how they can get support, you know, what they can look at uh, if they run into any roadblocks. And uh, this is where the SBFF program, the Employability Fund, works very closely with the uh, uh, the nonprofit sector to be able to provide support to those who are in the margins. So uh, looking at training, I think it is not just about the provision of the training, but how can we get people into the training and sustain them? So the career coaching is definitely a, a very good uh, suggestion. And that can come from within the employers, not as an additional outside uh, role, but from within the employers, uh, hiring people uh, in the HR department, uh, as, uh, as supporters, as, you know, like befrienders for those who are less skilled. I don't know, I just, I just wanted to weigh into what uh, Ranga and Shisha both mentioned. Totally agree. I think uh, I think traditionally, uh, we have very, been very strong uh, through our Employability and Employment Institute, uh, E2I, as well as uh, Careers Connect uh, by the Workforce Singapore. I think we traditionally we've been very strong in career counselling and coaching to support the unemployed, those being retrenched, and way to segue back into some form of career or job. But I think increasingly, uh, those in already in employment, I mean, we, we, because of the disruptions you've seen and the various transformations you've seen uh, in the past couple of years, I think very, very important to also look at, uh, you know, those already in employment and therefore the importance of not just looking at the older, uh, more vulnerable ones, but also the younger ones as they prepare to enter the workforce. But at the same time, also to su better support employers to provide this very individualized career coaching. But traditionally, employers usually provide such coaching services to more the high potential, those that may take on leadership positions in organizations. But I think, uh, you know, as, as the whole workforce uh, matures and, and develops, I think there's a greater need and imperative for us to look at career coaching and counseling uh, at, at, at the individual level at the company level and also at, uh, across all segments of the hierarchy. Thank you. Thank you all for your insights on this. Uh, on a related note, there's an interesting question uh, from our online audience. Okay, What would the panel think of going beyond a tripartite system to a quadripartite system that includes community into the conversation? 
Yeah, it's interesting because we have uh, Renga here from the nonprofit sector uh, that would share with us, you know, how does this look like if we are going to include the community into this conversation together with the labour movement, the government, businesses and employers? I must say thank you for the question. That was the diagram I presented earlier. Uh, so I, I don't know what's the word for it, quadratite <laughs> well, movement. Uh, you know, so uh, definitely, I, I think it, we are living out life as a whole if we leave out the civil society or the nonprofit sector. Because, you know, we often feel the job is to earn money to live life and it is separate. But I, I really think it is very, very important that we work closely together. And when we talk about the nonprofit sector, it's not only talking about low income, it's talking about all types of vulnerabilities uh, and, and, you know, challenges that people may face on the ground. Uh, and that's why the examples that are provided there is so that we can really look at how we can come more closely together. Uh, so many studies have been done, surveys have been done, and you know we we look at the voice of the people being represented in these studies. Uh, but what more can we do to be able to actually listen to those uh, challenges that they are expressing and having uh, these uh, yeah four four different uh, stakeholders come together to look at it. Uh, I don't know what it looks like. Uh, maybe it's already being done through various efforts, like I mentioned, like SBFF, uh, WorkWell, uh, Beyond to some extent, and other charities. Uh, but perhaps we can uh, put greater focus on civil society participation. Any thoughts from Mr. Patrick Tay? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I quite uh, uh, excited about this. Uh, additional fourth party, but I thought there'll be actually more multiple parties. In fact, uh, the labor movement beyond tripartism uh, through our labor research conference last year, as well as the Singapore Labor Journal, has tried to engage our fourth big you know partner, uh, which stakeholder, which is actually the Institutes of Higher Learning as well as the think tanks, which includes IPS as well, and and you know how we can translate useful research into actionables uh, to impact the ground and particularly workers. But I thought uh, for partnering in the various segments. I think, uh, well, in, in more ways than one, we are partnering with various segments. For example, like the labor movement, uh, because we have our social enterprises as well. So the cooperatives and social enterprises are already part of our network, including the youth through our Young NTUC and Nebo. And I believe the government as well, uh, through the People's Association Network, as well as the various ministries where there's a lot of engagement, for example, like MSF, with uh, different segments of, of community, uh, particularly the not-for-profits and uh, the civil society groups. So I think, well, there are various ways, and I think the key thing is how, through these many helping hands, we can work together with a multi-stakeholder approach to to confront and take on some of these challenges and issues as we as we move ahead. Yeah, I just want to add. Um, so, from the study that we did, there was another survey that we had done, and we had asked all the trainees how did they get to know about a particular training program. There's so many which are available. And the, most of them said, you know, my friend suggested or my family member suggested. So there's so much of peer to peer kind of, you look at your friend and if they've undergone a successful training, you would like to kind of trust them or really are encouraged more, uh, more than just maybe going to a website and just thinking that this might be good. So if we understand this aspect, this community aspect of it, that the word of mouth about a particular training or some real positive outcomes of a particular training goes a long way in bringing more people on board to, uh, to kind of undertake more training, have a kind of positive mindset towards lifelong learning. 
So kind of community does need to be part of this picture if we really want to make uh, uh, an impact. Yeah, could I just add on a little bit about the uh, Institutes of Higher Learning? I think Patrick, you touched on it. And community, if you really look at it, is a community of the of the study as well, right? In their in their schools. So ITE, for instance, is uh, I think twenty percent of what we call many of our students are in ITE, uh, and we consider that uh, as a tertiary qualification. And uh, I know that within ITE, there's uh, uh, there are different uh, departments that look at counseling, you know, helping kids uh, stay on track in their school and so on. But perhaps again, we are working quite separately. So while there's career, uh, you know, support for those students who are com coming out of ITE, maybe there needs to be a more coordinated effort within the Institute of Higher Learning and the careers they actually come out to, uh, which is specifically the ITE and even the secondary school. So when they finish uh, normal tech, for instance. Uh, so this part of it, I, I think can is, is, has got to be more actively looked at. I've spoken to counselors in schools and in ITEs, and you find that there is really a challenge for them, and they are handling it more of a social issue that uh, the the kids can't stay in school. But it's more than that because it's actually then them becoming contributing members of society, right? How do we allow that track to be smoother for them? Because it is very real the challenges that they face in their communities. But how can we allow this to be a natural progression? Uh, so looking at that instead of functioning separately. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, the nexus between our, uh, you know, IHLs or should I say CET centers as well as industry, uh, we see this very, very important, particularly important as we witness to uh, the last two and a half years during the pandemic where many of the new school leavers couldn't really land into jobs. So that's where we had to mobilize industry, sectors, companies, company by company literally, you know, to provide traineeship opportunities to uh, you know, basically to, 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 to cement or to allow uh, school leavers to, to segue into some possible careers. So I think I can't agree more. I think this nexus, I think it's also uh, highlighted in our PME task force report, really spot on one of recommendations on how we can bring this bigger, better nexus between industry and, uh, and, and training and training centres as well as IHS. All right. Uh, thank you, speakers. On the related note of working together, uh, I, I think we all can um, agree that uh, public engagements with citizens, or in this case, workers, are on the rise. Increasingly, they're seen as key to achieving collective interest and collective action. So we see various representatives from NTUC today spoke about NTUC's Every Worker Matters conversations, yeah, their year-long engagements with workers. And then this morning, we have SecGen, Mr. Ng Chi-Meng, and Assistant SecGen, Mr. Desmond Chu, speak about the Youth Task Force being set up by the NTUC to engage young Singaporeans in schools and also the young labour market entrants. Uh, and also uh, from Ms. Ranga, we now know that beyond social services and their community projects, which includes community circles, community enablers, and community fellows. Right, so we all can agree that public engagements are on the rise to enable workers to have a more active role in shaping policies and programs. Uh, I suppose I also echo the concerns of some of the online audience when they mention about worries whether or not these vulnerable workers can participate in this process, or whether or not in rescaling, upscaling, uh, career conversion, uh, whether or not um, uh, they are able to participate equally in the engagement process. So I think it's also common knowledge that workers facing job vulnerabilities tend to be the harder to reach communities and they tend to be excluded from in the process. 
right? So the thing is, how can we then um, enable them to, to engage in this process? Uh, how can we ensure the diversity in the representation of workers? Yeah, how can we develop the functional capabilities of workers so that they can participate fully and meaningfully in this engagement process? Yeah, so I perhaps uh, I'll open the question to, to Patrick uh, first and then followed by uh, Renga and Shrija. Yeah. yeah. Uh, thanks for that question. I think uh, definitely much to share about engagement and engaging uh, our vulnerable workers. I think particularly, I would like to just point back to how you know the PME Task Force did our one-year journey engaging more than 10,000 professionals, managers, executives. Like I said, due to the safe management measures, we had to do it both online and offline. Uh, we did uh, various forms uh, uh, through online as well. I think the face-to-face -face ones were particularly enlightening and, and endearing. Uh, because uh, it wasn't easy, yeah. I because in that in those focus groups, fourteen to fifteen of them, uh, we have actually captured all the points that were raised during these focus groups as part of the annex through a nice diagram, or should I say infographics, uh, in, in their report. So it's really no holds barred. Whatever they were shared were actually transcribed into that, and everyone endorsed it before we published it. Uh, so every participant uh, who, whose views were aired and shared. Uh, were actually reflected there. So uh, some of the points uh, shared there may sound sometimes a bit more taboo and you know beyond the, the OB markers, but really we wanted to uh, allow an opportunity for us, uh, both the labor movement as well as employers, to share their thoughts and uh, their fears and anxieties. So I must say uh, it wasn't an easy journey. Of course, online uh, is a bit different from face-to-face. -face. So in those limited uh, 15 focus groups that we had, I had a, had a rare opportunity to engage with uh, well quite a number of disgruntled professional managers and executives as well, who really gave me uh, all their thoughts, uh, their challenges and what they actually encountered uh, it, it, when, when either they were terminated, laid off, or you know, uh, passed aside for a promotion or given a bad appraisal. So we, I, I literally, myself and uh, my, my colleagues were, uh, or uh, you know, the fellow facilitators, we really had them uh, you know, really face the hard truths. And uh, it wasn't easy. Because many of them uh, uh, had opportunity to well, well they, they, it was it was not a small group. I would say about fifteen to twenty of them, but really, really shared uh, you know and give whatever they had uh, in in a very frank and honest manner. It wasn't easy because it, it, sometimes when you do such sessions, it, you can be quite shocked at some of the remarks made and and some some of the the actual uh, scenarios that they have faced. Uh, the rejections, sometimes uh, the comments made by prospective employers, for example. Uh, so, so it was really a, 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 a very enlightening, as I shared, and uh, we've tried to capture some of these points uh, in, in the, the annex of the PME Task Force report. And uh, if for some of you who, have, who are tuning in, who may want to have a view of some of the, the points that were shared. And, and therefore, we managed to distill uh, many of these. So, for example, uh, a very, very good example is uh, quite a number, particularly in the, their 50s, um, PMEs uh, shared about you know the difficulty to re-enter because you know previously they came for a, a sector where, where where you know they were they had quite a few direct reports when they tried to apply for a job and they were individual contributors I mean they were, they were kind of like uh, sidelined and and uh, well sort of saying being discriminated against because of their age uh, so so these some were some of the points that were raised and and they, some also shared that it took a longer than normal uh, period of time to really bounce back. So that's where the, the, the point on unemployment support and short, like a short-term relief for those really actively looking to re-enter, but maybe perhaps need some support and link up for the time being. So that's where we came up with that recommendation and, and included that as part of 
uh, one of the nine recommendations in our report, how we can better help and support uh, some of these uh, you know, displaced workers or workers who are actively looking for a job but just need some leg up uh, in, an, in the interim period. So uh, like I said, uh, it's not an easy journey, uh, but, uh, but uh, we are doing a second iteration of it through the Every Worker Matters conversation. Like the very first one, the sec uh, this round, uh, we, are, we are engaging further and wider, including various segments. Uh, and, and some of you who are tuning in who may want to participate in some of our sessions, feel free to log on to our EWMC website and, and sign up uh, to, 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 you know, to be part of our various focus group sessions, which are still continuing. And we are even doing roving exhibitions as well across Singapore so that you can provide your views, your thoughts, uh, and your aspirations uh, through this platform as we establish the new worker compact. Uh, yes, so I, I suppose uh, for, for Renga, perhaps I can shift the question a little bit, uh, meaning that, okay, so um, well, inviting them, uh, workers, to hear their views, listen to their stories, um, soliciting their feedback is one part, but how do we move the conversation to get having a role for them in decision-making and planning? How does it look like on the ground? Yeah, so I, I'm just uh, thinking, I actually attended uh, one of the conversations uh, held at NTUC with uh, with uh, a family from my neighbourhood. So it was a mother in her late 40s with her daughter who's 18, and we participated in the conversations. And I must say that uh, the family came out of it, and even myself, you know, hearing different voices uh, was good. And uh, the mother actually gave feedback, like uh, she was able to say whatever she wanted to say without being censored. Uh, you know that she did. She felt safe enough to share it, but it was a very large conversation, right? So there were there were many many groups uh, focusing on different issues in that one uh, conversation held in the middle of August. And maybe Robin, to answer your question, I would think that bringing these conversations into the community. So there are various uh, charities that work with uh, with employability, right? So Daughters of Tomorrow is one. You know there are many such, and perhaps bringing these conversations into the communities that we serve where there is not only one focus group, but, you know, uh, journeying with them a little bit. So this I'm sharing, I'm taking from my uh, family circles uh, example, right? So it's like a series where people who want to contribute and participate don't only attend one focus group, but they then go on to attend uh, maybe two or three sessions, which can also be seen as somewhat of a training and skills sharing, where they then actively share their ideas or views about how they can be included in the in the workforce or improve their roles if they're already in the workforce. Uh, but even while I say that, I wonder whether people have time for it because uh, often they don't get to see the outcome of their contributions. So they are sharing their thoughts and many people come to them to ask them about their thoughts, but they don't actually get to see the outcome. So I, I'm really not sure. Perhaps creating conversations for smaller group sharing among different age groups in different uh, types of uh, disadvantaged communities could be one way uh, and not making it a one-off uh, could contribute better. Yeah. And the second thing I wanted to say is I think uh, while we are here at this forum discussing all the different policies and so on, the lower wage workers may not actually know very clearly what is the what are these policies. How does it translate to their everyday lives? They only see the part where they are impacted negatively. So again, right, going back to the communities to share with them, as a result of your sharing, this has shifted somewhat. Or as a result of your, you know, this is these are the uh, pathways we have in place. And not just as a presentation, but to say, you know, is there something you would like to contribute back? So this is the inclusion part of it, right? So we found that actually people like to 
uh, we, we, we always do a, make it a point to present back to the communities what they have presented to us as their lived experiences. So this ongoing dialogue is what uh, we need to uh, ensure. Okay, uh, thanks Ranga. Thanks Ranga for sharing how we can also develop the functional capabilities of these workers so that they can participate meaningfully and fully. All right, so if I'm going to look back at the online questions post, uh, well, this is highly uh, voted, top voted in fact, uh, to Ms. Ranga. Um, one, um, one of the online audience posted this, um, they're surprised to hear that IT graduates do not find better employ paid employment than those who have just all level qualifications. Yeah, what could be the problem here? That's the curiosity. Yeah, is it about the IT curriculum um, and or about the system not identifying um, what the industry needs in terms of the skill set? Um, actually, this should be Irene should be commenting on this because it is from the from that study. And I think what has happened, especially because of the pandemic, is that people then went into the uh, you know delivery services. So in this study that was done in 2020, uh, 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 it looked like uh, more of the IT graduates are employed in the delivery sector. So I'm just trying to look for those uh, factors now. I I don't think it is really to do so much with the curriculum. Uh, we are in in the way that the IT courses are done. It is more to for employability, right? So it is not actually focusing uh, so much on the aspirations of people, but it's looking at the employability once they come out of uh, ITE. So I, I really can't comment on the ITE system, but it could be the times that we are living in right now and the higher demand for workers in particular sectors. So when it came to uh, actually uh, the type of uh, work that people took on, it was more in the delivery area. Uh, and I, I really can't shed light on why it is different. It is, I think people are just trying to make ends meet and they take what is available. Uh, so we had lots of job offers during the COVID uh, period where it was uh, largely about, uh, uh, you know, Grab and uh, Amazon and so on, you know, where people just go there because they get, they can definitely get paid, but there's not really that much of uh, uh, future or protection for them. Okay. Thank yeah. you. Thank you, Ranga, for this. Right, right now I'm going to move to another topic on unemployment support. All right, so this is one of the PME's task force key recommendations. Uh, unemployment support um, is being considered and uh, put forth to the government. Uh, all right, so the question is, would that extend to some form of cash benefits for the involuntary um, retrenched workers? Uh, how would it look like and does it differ from the PMEs as well as the non-PMEs? Yeah, uh, thank, thanks for that question, Robin. I think uh, that's one of the nine recommendations. Of course, uh, it's not been uh, fully adopted by the government yet, but uh, they are really seriously uh, looking at it. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a deeper problem or deeper issue and uh, in which needs really a deeper dive uh, for, for a variety of reasons because, you know, how much to give, what is enough, you know, whether you are a PME, whether you are a lower-wage worker, how much uh, should we... Uh, you know, provide as an unemployment support and in what circumstances because the word involuntary uh, could, could come in various ways you know if you are if you are retrenched or laid off maybe it's quite obvious but if you are not but because of some circumstances you have to leave your job uh, beyond your control or sometimes within your control uh, will that tantamount to in, be, be involuntary as well so I think there are a lot of questions and definitions that need to, to be worked out but, but more importantly, if you look at our PME task of recommendations, which many of the PMEs agree, I think the key thing is we want the, you know, to support those who, are, who, have, who have lost their jobs to be able to re-enter the workforce and to find meaningful work. So I think uh, whatever support that is given, uh, which is, we hope, 
in a monetary way. I mean, they are already training support, training grants, uh, but, but and of course, coaching, career coaching, uh, employability camps. But I think beyond that, how we can provide some monetary support to, to as sustenance to support and help uh, the particular unemployed person to, to, to right this difficult way. Because as I shared earlier, based on the manpower statistics, mature PMEs in particular, uh, in fact, we shared beyond mature employed, uh, PMEs, all, all segments of workers, especially the mature ones, uh, take a longer time and uh, may need more support and help. And so, so this should be, uh, the unemployment support should be framed in such a way to help them tide over that difficult period and to further encourage and motivate them. Uh, well, in, in many parts of the world, they call it active labour market policy, uh, meaning that we want to incentivize those who are actively looking out uh, to, to re-enter the workforce and to find work. Uh, not to incentivize not working, but really to incentivize uh, those who are you know, actively looking for work. I think that's the, the desired outcome at the end of the day. All right. Okay, thank you. Um, moving ahead. All right, there is a question for Dr. Shrija. Um, is there any research or data that monitors the success rate of people who have been retrenched but managed to get back to the workforce through um, upskilling and reskilling? Perhaps if I could extend the question a little bit, uh, what about those uh, individuals that go through upskilling, reskilling to pivot their careers to a different occupation or to a different industry? Um, what is the success rate? And of course, what do their wages look like? Is there any data or research that, uh, that you could share with us on this? So in terms of research, different studies have been done, uh, like uh, the Ministry of Trade and Industry, MTI had done one study where wages, but it was not, uh, it was more on the kind of, if you're doing a particular course, what uh, will there be difference in your wages? Uh, not more so, not so much for training programs as such. Now, I just want to kind of highlight that how success is defined as well is, is different. Uh, even trainees themselves, you know, what they want to do after that. Is it just getting a job? Is it getting a better um, salary or just moving into a new sector and then making their way up from, from there? So success can look uh, quite different. So there are, um, you know, research studies, um, but uh, which, which kind of tackle a small group of people. And then, you know, let, let's look at what their uh, job outcomes were. Uh, looking at trainee attitudes, particularly. So those who were kind of keen learners, highly motivated, did they get um, uh, placed earlier or um, did they end up getting better pay? So there are studies of this kind uh, all over the world, but uh, but large scale studies like this, um, it, it's mainly because it's difficult to kind of track this kind of success. Um, usually just most of the you know surveys that I've looked at they look at when did you find a job and did you find a job but going fine uh, details into that that what does that success look like uh, there, there aren't many studies which to do that primarily because it's difficult to to qualify that success okay all right um moving on all right, there's a question about uh, the widening social capital for vulnerable groups. Um, so is, is there anything more that can be done to, to so that the reliance on social networking becomes less of a factor in the recruitment and hiring process? This uh, question is posed to, to Ranga, Ms. Ranga. I think social capital comes with social participation and yeah. inclusion. 
so I think providing spaces for people to contribute, you know, so in their own communities, in their own workplaces. So in their workplace, if it is a, just a job and you go and you do your job and you come back and you don't meet anyone uh, to interact with, I think that in itself reduces your social capital. So uh, it is very, very important because most of us got our jobs because we know someone who knows someone who knows someone. So I, I think it is very, very important to create spaces. So again, to think of our lives as not uh, separate to be able to create a, a participation uh, is, is extremely important, whether it's recreational, whether it's something that is to do with improving your skills. So uh, a lot of uh, money is put into training. Uh, how can we create more recreational or social participation in our own community? So of course we have the PA network and you know you could participate in the residence committee or uh, the CC and so on. That is one formal way of doing it. Uh, but how else can we have people participate in their own clubs and associations in their own communities. So especially for the lower wage workers, uh, this is a challenge because time is of essence, right? So they don't really have that much of time. Uh, so where employers and uh, can work together with their communities is to create participation within their organizations such that even the less skilled uh, employees uh, in their organization can participate. Uh, this would be one way of looking at it. And in neighborhoods, how is neighborhood participation seen? Is it uh, only once or twice a year where you come for celebrations or is it active participation in conversations that happen there in activities that happen uh, in your neighborhoods? Okay, so for uh, Mr. Patrick Tay, I'm also curious uh, on the note of participation, uh, how has uh, NTUC's public engagement evolved over time as well? Yeah, I think uh, we have been uh, trying various ways, uh, as I said earlier, through the PME task force and now the Every Worker Matters conversations, various platforms, various ways. As you know, uh, the definition of worker is now getting even more wider. We have freelance workers, we have those uh, in employment, those out of employment, uh, including younger, not so young workers, local foreign workers, as well as those preparing to enter the workforce. So I think uh, different strokes or different folks, I think different ways to engage uh, beyond social media, beyond online polls, and uh, beyond focus groups. Uh, uh, and, and now we have, through various ways, for example, like roving exhibitions and really going to the heartlands of the community. Uh, like recently, uh, during one of the open houses in the Frontier Community Club, we had our Every Worker Matters Conversations booth to be cited there to really hear from the community in the heartlands uh, what their thoughts of the new worker compact is, what's close to their hearts, what they hope to see uh, you know, what, which areas of policy changes which they hope to see and what more could, uh, you know, the labour movement as well as our tripartite partners do to partner them in that journey. So I think in, in, in uh, I must say, um, engagement will evolve. Uh, we have now different platforms. I remember, you know, as we, as we did the various engagements in 2020, uh, we had to do them uh, via Zoom, by Skype, WebEx, uh, Microsoft Teams and various uh, platforms, even Facebook live chats and, and uh, through Insta live chats as well. So I think increasingly, I think we are uh, you know, thinking of new ways to engage and also to solicit more views on the ground. And, and I can't agree more, uh, besides uh, soliciting views, I think important moving forward to be able to close the gap uh, in, 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 in you know, uh, going back to those feedback providers, those where we have engaged to let them know, for example, like the PME task force report, including some of the feedback in as part of the report in the annex, uh, which we hope to do so likewise in the Every Worker Matters conversation. And then 
suggest policy recommendations, uh, and then close the loop uh, with, with all our feedback providers. I think that's important because increasingly, people, as people provide views and their thoughts and their aspirations and their anxieties and fears, I think we, we hope uh, through the engagement process to close the loop and say, you know, what's being done, what has been done, what may not be, be able to be done uh, so that we can be able to close the loop and, and have an answer to some of these uh, views and, and ideas and feedback provided. All right, thank you. Well, um, I'll try to squeeze in one final question before we close the session. Um, there have been some questions to do with discrimination at work. All right, so the thing is, um, there is anti, there's no anti-discrimination laws in Singapore. So there's one participant that mentioned that um, there's a sense that employers practice discrimination and they are likely to be able to justify why they are not re-employing a senior at retirement age. And also you see anti-discrimination when um, low-wage workers experience unfair treatment at the workplace. So um, do our uh, speakers here have, have um, any thoughts to share on, on this? Yeah, uh, I think I'll take that question since it's something very close to my heart as well. It's something which I'm quite passionate about uh, this space. And, uh, and well, the good news is uh, workplace fairness and anti-discrimination is one of the big pieces or one of the suggestions in our PME Task Force report recommendations. And I'm glad to also share with our, our, our audience that uh, we are in the midst, uh, we have formed a tripartite committee on workplace fairness. We have engaged far and wide uh, through various segments uh, of the community from HR professionals to legal practitioners, etc. And then we are still in that journey. Uh, we, uh, the the, the tripartite committee uh, of which I'm a part of, uh, we are actually uh, deliberating and, and working out uh, well uh, the areas of ambit of coverage and, and the very, very exacting details of this piece of legislation. Uh, which we are looking at uh, to promulgate uh, something what we call the workplace fairness piece of legislation. In fact, uh, well, uh, some comfort to, to some of you, uh, there's already a tripartite alliance of fair employment, fair and progressive employment practices, TAFET for short, uh, which is enforcing uh, a, a set of gu tripartite guidelines called the tripartite guidelines on fair employment practices. So in fact, even today, if you face any discriminatory hiring or practices, uh, feel free to contact TAFET. Uh, and uh, we, we will use uh, this tripartite guidelines well in a way to steer and educate many of our employers who are really, you know, sometimes maybe egregious. But the good news is uh, there will be a piece of workplace fairness legislation akin to an anti-discriminatory piece of legislation. First of its kind in Singapore, uh, you, you will hear more about it in the coming months. And, uh, and uh, like I said, uh, we, we, are, we are hoping to have some landing points on this and, uh, and work out so that, well, um, the big focus uh, is, is on those really egregious, very recalcitrant uh, practices. So I think, I think we want to weed those out. Uh, the good thing is, uh, in, in the course of this entire year, as, we, as, as the work group uh, discussed and uh, look at this issue of workplace fairness, majority of the employers in Singapore are fair and responsible, some even progressive. But however, there are still a few black sheep out there, uh, whether it's ageism, whether it's nationality discrimination, we still see pockets of those. I mean, these are public data uh, that's available uh, where Ministry of Manpower do have actually taken to task some employers who have, uh, you know, egregious practices on this front of uh, discrimination. So uh, look out for it. I think it's coming up. Uh, like I said, uh, I, I'm behind you in this journey as well. Can I just pop in to say that uh, it is also the role of employers to have a diversity and inclusion policy in place. So this may not be enforced, but it's something that uh, we really need to look at in terms of gender 
uh, race and so on. So I, I, I think that uh, employers taking the lead on having a diversity and inclusion officer in their workplace, apart from the HR, and ensuring that uh, the complaints of discrimination are heard within the, the organization is important as well. Uh, Dr. Srija, any final remarks from you? Uh, I'll just add uh, this that when you think of discrimination, uh, it, it really holds a lot of, uh, at least from the interviews, I feel a lot of trainees seeing the value in training at all. Because if when they if they feel that when I reach the employer or the job front, nothing is going to matter. So this whole mindset that there will be uh, or um, you know skepticism against that you know all this training will not be valuable. So having these kind of support measures would really kind of boost, uh, give that kind of even that a mental boost that you know uh, I will be judged kind of based on my skills and my qualifications and uh, my general experience and mindset and not based on other factors. Thank you. All right, thank you to all three um, panel speakers. Uh, well, it's important to harness the capabilities of workers to be adaptable, to be resilient, to take charge of their own careers in this, um, in this fast changing economic landscape so such that they become employable, uh, and be able to have great career prospects. Um, it is important not to overlook the structural conditions such as job insecurity, low wages, white wage gap, poor working conditions, unfair treatment in the workplace that could continue to perpetuate the inequalities that they face if not being addressed. Addressing job vulnerabilities requires structural change involving the government, the labour movement, employers or businesses uh, to ensure decent and viable work for all such that no individuals or no groups are being left behind. With this, I would like to bring this session to a close and convey my thanks to our online speakers, um, Mr. Patrick Tay, Dr. Srija Naya, Ms. Ranga, and to our online audience for joining in and contributing to our discussion today. A gentle reminder that today's video will be available on the online platform for two weeks if you wish to view it again. Um, this panel is the last of the six online sessions that have been held over two days, last Thursday and today. Up next, we have the in-person conference on the 16th of January. This will be a fully physical conference, but we will continue to discuss how can we balance the aspirations of different groups of Singaporeans and revitalize our social compact as the future of work descends upon us. Uh, we look forward to seeing you there. With this, I will end today's session. Good afternoon and goodbye.